QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Rachel Loneyhouse. Rachel is a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Wollongong. Her research focuses on two key areas, the use of digital platforms for activism against sexual violence and alternative reporting options for survivors of sexual violence. On this episode, Rachel and Jody discuss a range of topics, including Rachel's new role as the vice president of ANSOC, the evolving social narrative around sexual violence, including the Me Too movement, how gender shapes our world, and the importance of listening and showing up. I'll briefly make a content warning too. Given Rachel's research area, this episode contains mentions of sexual violence. The discussion is not graphic, as this conversation focuses more on how we understand sexual violence in our culture. But if that topic isn't for you today, maybe jump to another episode. Without any further ado, Rachel Loneyhouse. Welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you? Hi Jodie. I'm Dr Rachel Loneyhouse. I'm a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Wollongong. What are you doing at QUT? I am here as a visiting fellow for the week. My professional service role is supporting ANZOC, the Australian Museum Society of Criminology, as the vice president. So I'm here for some meetings to do with that and also to share some of my research on alternative reporting options for sexual violence survivors. Amazing. Being Vice President of ANSOC sounds very flash. It sounds flash, yes. And when I tell people that's what I am, they're always very impressed. Essentially, ANSOC, for those of you who don't know, is the professional organisation for criminologists across Australia and Aotearoa and England. We also have a number of professional, non-academic members of ANSOC. And essentially, we provide support, guidance and organise a conference every year for criminologists across Australia and Aotearoa New Zealand as well as the Pacific of course too and we also have a range of thematic groups that folks can join if they want to. There's funding available for people to put on local events and seminars as well as you know share resources so whether it's teaching related or research related we've got a range of, um, range of different resources that you can access on the website as well. So what's ANSOC's relationship with students, undergraduate and postgraduate and otherwise? It's a great question. So I think historically it's been primarily for you know academics who are already working as academics or for people who are working in the public service or in criminal justice related jobs. And we have a number of awards for postgraduate and undergraduate students as well. And of course, um, undergraduate students and postgraduate students are very welcome to join the conference. And the last conference that we had back in Darwin, 
in 2022 really integrated the postgraduate students into the core uh, the core elements of the program itself which was really great to see those up-and-coming researchers who are doing such amazing cutting-edge research it really is such a pleasure to see such fantastic postgraduate students coming through the ranks and we've got some ideas in the pipeline around how we can engage better with our undergraduate students and give them an idea of what it means to be a criminologist whether it's in a kind of professional non-academic capacity or in an academic capacity as well so we're really excited to reach out more to our undergraduate students and to give you more of an opportunity to get to know who we are as well and the kinds of things that we do and how we can support you to you know undertake further study if that's what you want to do or give you access to job opportunities as well. I want to say two things. One, I really loved that at the ANSOC conference this year, the postgrads were integrated into the main program. That's not usual at conferences, and I thought it was an excellent decision. Mm. How did that happen? That was just a decision that was made by the conference organisers. I think that it was a really great idea as well. So I think that we're going to do it again this year, and hopefully that's going to be the norm moving forward. I'm totally excited about that. What do professionals get out of being in ANSOC? Well, I think that they get access to that research that's being published. I've heard various different statistics over the year about how long it takes for research to be translated into practice and into policy, roughly in the order of 15 to 17 years, which is a very long time. And That's um, crazy. if we can expose people working on the ground to the findings from our work and make those connections, it can be a really powerful way to have impact with our work as well as to also facilitate those really important relationships with people who are working on the ground to assist them as well with whatever kind of research projects that they might require our expertise for as well. So I think that it was really great to see at the ANZOC conference again last year, there were quite a number of professional criminologists working in the community who came along. Some of them worked in justice, um, some of them were working in child protection, some of them were working in support services, a range of different examples. There was a couple of people who were quite high up from the Western Australian government who were there as well and it was great to rub shoulders with them and hear their perspectives on how they think research gets translated Mm. into practice as well. So it was a really fantastic opportunity to really get to know how criminology works in action and also too for them to see how researchers approach criminology too because there'll be differences in in how these things actually operate on the ground. I also totally loved that one of the keynotes, so for those of you aren't familiar, a keynote is like the main lecture Mm -hmm. at a conference and otherwise at conferences you have these panels where a bunch of different speakers will give kind of short snapshots of stuff. So one of the main keynotes was not by a big fancy academic but was actually someone working in the front line key in government and I thought that was so exciting and meaningful to be sitting in the audience of that again what's that decision around again that was a deliberate decision I think to really step away from the pomp and ceremony that can sometimes come with academic conferences and to really center the voices of those people who are working in practice in criminology and keynote speaker who we had was a fantastic Indigenous practitioner as well who was able to provide such compelling insights into what's going on and the challenges that they face in their everyday work, Mm. you know, knowing the tensions, the complexities and what needs to happen in order to facilitate change but also those bureaucratic barriers that they come up against that prevent that that change from being Mm. able to, to manifest and so that was really great I think for us to see 
that even those who are working in that space can validate the things that we're saying to our students at times about how you know the challenges around making change within the criminal justice sector that these professional criminologists are able to demonstrate that with some really clear and key examples about what it is that the barriers are that they're facing in their work and also the amazing things that they're also doing you know as well mm. I think that we tend to focus so much on the kind of negative facets of criminal punishment systems and things like that and seeing what works in action is also really exciting too. That was by far one of the best keynotes I have ever sat in Mm, at a, and I think one of the most, like you could tangibly feel people in the room interacting and kind of being impacted by Mm. what was being said and what was being presented. So it's one thing to be a member of a organisation as an academic or as a professional. Why would you want to be on the executive? That just seems like a lot more work. Well, I was approached by the now president to take up the role of the vice presidency. At the time, I was just the New South Wales rep and the former president had asked me to be in that role as well. So I was not anticipating being in this position at all. And one of the key reasons why I decided to take the role, it's an unpaid role, just so everyone knows. <laughs> everyone is really it's free. It does not necessarily count in workload. <laughs> no, that's right. That's another problem, but um, we'll get to that. So I was approached to take on the job. And over the last couple of years, ANZOC has been undergoing a bit of a transformation consultation, which is a fancy way of saying that we're trying to rethink how ANZOC operates and to bring it into... 2023, which we're now in, to make it more accessible, to make it more relevant to criminology in Australia and Aotearoa and New Zealand. And I was part of that committee around assisting with the consultation on how we could improve ANZOC. And it was well overdue, you know, to undertake that process. And so I I spent some time thinking about whether or not it was the right time for me to move into a role like that. I'm still quite early in my career, even though I'm a senior lecturer now, I'm still only five years out of my PhD. So I'm still quite fresh (laughs) into Mm. my job. And I was not quite sure if it was really the right thing to do. But I think having Ange Higginson, who's the president now, you know, in that role with Suzanne Fiedslicker, who's the New Zealand president, you know, we're, I think we're, an, we're a good team and we're really enthusiastic about trying to make ANZOC more, more modern, more reflective of contemporary criminology. And, um, and, and the best way, I think, sometimes to affect change can be from within. I don't know if we'll be able to achieve all the things that we would like to in our tenure, but hopefully we can make a good start. Yeah, totally. I'm on board. Like, I love this. Dear listener, you'll be unsurprised to hear that I love this leadership team of women. Also love that there's two New Zealanders and an Australian. Like, that seems like a bit of a (laughs) switch in the ordinary balance of things, which is pretty great. Well, you do get two for the price of one with me. Yes, so I am, for those of you who are listening, and I'm I'm actually originally from Aotearoa, New Zealand, but have lived in Australia for a number of years now. So, um, yes, you do get two for the price of one. I love that. (laughs) Although apparently there's no price attached to your expertise. No, there is no price. (laughs) Which I guess raises a question for me around, it seems to me that in any job, and maybe particularly in academia, maybe or not, there are things that you will do for love, not money. Mm. How does that sit with you? I think that's a really great question and something that we all have had to think about, particularly with research, but also too with, I think, the service and governance roles that we might take on and teaching, of course, as well. And I think that at times 
our institutions rely on us being so passionate about certain things that we will do it for free and that we are all guilty at times of letting work bleed into non-work time and having that work-life balance is a real struggle I think for a lot of academics and being clear about what your boundaries are around when you're working and when you're not working and I think that you're that you're right that's a really difficult um, thing to juggle and that you know that kind of passion to want to improve things and make things better is something that underscores my teaching and research as well and so all the thing all the decisions I've probably made about service about teaching about research have been driven by what excites me and what makes me what what impassions me Mm. to want to engage with it and I guess I'm also very privileged in that sense that I am able to take on those roles and do that kind of research and do that sort of teaching and not be given subjects I don't really want to teach because I'm not passionate about or find myself on research projects that I had to take on because I needed to do something with my time and same with you know service and governance roles you know you can find yourself having to take on roles that you really don't want to to do and whilst it's a bit unclear the extent to which the roles like the ANZOC ones will be covered by your workload I I think my at least at the moment my head of school is quite generous in letting external governance be part of my workload because there just also aren't enough governance roles to go around sometimes as well. And those leadership opportunities are really difficult. And I feel like we are constantly faced with a double-edged sword of the joy of getting to do things that we're really passionate about Mm. and the exhaustion of doing things that we're really Mm. passionate about in academia. So conferences, visiting scholarships, these are all great opportunities to share your work with colleagues, conferences a bit more widely. Mm. But why is it important to share your work at all? So I found from very early on that there's something really, really interesting and engaging about going to conferences. I started going to conferences when I was in my second year of my PhD, so I started sharing my work really early on. And I think that one of the really great outcomes of going to conferences, I mean, there's a number of them, but one is to get feedback from experts in your field, particularly if you're at a very sort of specialised conference. They can sometimes be the best ones to go to, you know, where it's a very niche market of academics who might be attending as opposed to something like ANZOC which is a much broader church and there's a whole range of different sessions and panels on a, on a range of different topics but the first I think um, the first kind of key outcome of sharing one's work is to be able to get that feedback from experts and also from your peers to be able to network with other people so meet like-minded academics or people who've got similar interests to you so you could create research projects together. One of the first it wasn't a conference that I went to but it well, it was a conference but I wasn't presenting but it was a an all-day panel that was put on by my then PhD supervisor and I was just volunteering and I went along and I got introduced to Dr Bianca Philiborn for those of you might amazing. have heard of Dr amazing academic. this was back I think it must have been at the end of 2013 or maybe the end of 2014 when she had just finished her thesis and uh, we, of course, have gone on to have a remarkably successful research partnership. We've we published a book together, some of you might have heard of it, Me Too and the Politics of Social Change, written a number of academic articles together, um, and that was all from going to that conference, where neither of us were actually presenting, but someone there introduced us because they knew that we had shared interests, and, of course, it has led to a, you know, a friendship as well as an academic partnership. So 
those are some of the really important things that can come out of attending conferences as well as of course the opportunity to potentially publish your work as well so that was how I got my first publication too was that I went to a conference and that was being sponsored by Outskirts which is a journal that was based out of UWA at the time I don't know if it still exists but they offered to publish a special issue on the conference and so I submitted a paper and it got published in that special issue and it was a great way to get some runs on the board as a PhD student so those are some key take-home messages. (laughs) I feel like people genuinely think at conferences and in academic seminars it's like this bloodbath of academics ripping each other's work (laughs) apart and on the whole I'm going to say that's not my experience at all. Genuinely people are actually really quite lovely and really thoughtful and yes critical but not critical in the sense of always being negative, but always like always willing to provide really amazing feedback. And mm. it's a bit of a misnomer. I've only ever seen it happen twice, and both was at ANSOC, I'm going to tell you. Way back <laughs> in the 2000s, so before your tenure, <laughs> of people actually like being what I would say unkind mm-hmm. in their feedback. Yeah. And for me, that's one of the biggest things is in going out and talking to other people is recognising that people are actually just genuinely kind and... Mm for most part, really humble in the things that they've achieved in their life. Yeah, I think that there's a disciplinary, there's disciplinary differences, of course, as well. So, yes, I think criminology is a very safe discipline to go out and share your work in, and people are usually very generous with the feedback that they provide you and are very willing to help as well. I think there's a lot of really great collegial spirit within Mm. criminology across Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. That's not the case for some other disciplines I've heard. So economics, for example, I've heard is a real bloodbath, but certainly not criminology. And I think that... um, that there is a real sense of wanting to lift one another up because it is a tough gig. Being an academic is a hard job and I think that we are, by virtue of our training, inherently critical. That's what we're trained to be but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a personal critique either as well. So I think that it's... And it can be hard to separate out those two at times but I, in my experience, have only ever had really great positive responses from the work that I've presented at conferences over the years. So... It is a, I know it's scary and it's nerve wracking. There's nothing more scarier than presenting to your colleagues, I think, isn't there? Uh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> because there is that, because we're all trained and we've all got that, you know, we're all that certain level of expertise and you always feel like you're going to be exposed, that you're a fraud. I mean, imposter syndrome is a thing. <laughs> totally is a thing. But on the whole, everyone is feeling the same way and we all are there to help each other out. And I mean, I certainly still walk into a room and think at conferences or at seminars and think like 95% of the room is smarter than me and is going to know like more <laughs> things than I know. And I'm meant to be standing up here as some kind of an expert. Anyhow, sidetrack. Tell me about your research. So I've got two main focuses in my work. The first one which is what I did my PhD thesis on, has been around using digital platforms for anti-sexual violence activism. And I was really fortunate that my thesis was looking at the Me Too movement before it became the Me Too movement. So I was really able to capitalise on that research once the Me Too movement emerged. And again, luck though, of course. I mean, the Me Too movement could have emerged at any time. And of course, there's a long history of, you know, using digital platforms as well as 
um, you know, non-online forms of activism around sexual violence, that the Me Too movement was a culmination of those efforts. So that's one aspect of the research that I do, and I'm working on a book project at the moment with Dr Tally O'Neill looking at um, public survivors and that phenomenon of public survivors, what does, and the discourses that they kind of reproduce or create through their publicness and the sort of work and activism that they're doing as a result of their own um, the violence that they've been subjected to. The other strand of work that I do is looking at alternative reporting options for survivors of sexual violence and that project really emerged again post-PhD. I was fortunate enough to be employed as a research assistant um, at RMIT after I completed my PhD thesis looking at these alternative reporting pathways and that when I got my job at the University of Wollongong, I then worked with the researchers whom I'd been research assistant for at RMIT on putting together a criminology grant or a CRG, which is paid for by the Australian Institute of Criminology. And we've been working on that ever since. What is a public survivor? So a public survivor would be someone like Grace Tame or Brittany Higgins, so someone who has been subjected to sexual violence and uses their experience to advocate in a very public way. So Rosie Batty was a classic example of a of a public survivor of domestic and family violence who was incredibly vocal in speaking out about the harms of violence and the effects that it has on community members as well as families and individuals. Grace Tame, of course, very famous for having being a public survivor and a really strong advocate for the Let Her Speak campaign, which sought to make those amendments to Section 94K or 194K of the um, Evidence Act in Tasmania um, and, of course, has been very vocal since then and was Australian of the Year. Why are these people interesting or important or significant? I think they're worth studying because they are speaking from a particular position and that particular position from which they're speaking forms part of cultural knowledge and social knowledge about what constitutes sexual violence, who and what a sexual violence survivor can look like, and the sorts of impact that they can also have on law and policy reform I think is really fascinating. And historically and contemporaneously, sexual violence, anti-sexual violence activism has very much been focused on the experiences of white middle class women and of course it's these same women who come into to prominence within the public sphere as well and of course what happens is it leads any other ways of thinking and knowing and understanding gender-based violence and so I'm particularly interested in how it is that those survivors come to influence mm. public opinion, public perceptions as well as law and policy changes that they may or may not be successful in achieving because I think it constructs and reinforces particular narratives about who and what is a sexual violence survivor. Yeah, I mean, like I... So I don't know if you know, but I actually wrote a book Mm. that includes this notion, I think, that public policy and changes to legislation has become reliant on the public survivor. Mm. I don't call them the public survivor, but certainly in terms of the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, that rise of a different type of survivor Mm. in that it was mostly older white men that garnered the kind of platform on which the... and relied heavily on media and I think that's a really interesting shift that's only made possible by 
the particular political positions and experiences that we have now as opposed to 1850s and earlier when mm-hmm. we know the first inquiries were happening into yeah. institutional child sexual abuse. It's an incredibly interesting area. Tell us about alternative forms of reporting. Mm. I just want to actually add on to what you were just saying before about the public yeah, survivors. Sorry, I didn't even give you an opportunity to no, do that. No, I think it was really a really interesting point. I think that there's this really interesting coalescing around media agenda setting, the particular subjectivity of the survivor themselves, as well as what we're seeing now too, social media. And I'm particularly interested in this phenomenon of the social media like the anti-rape influencer, Mm -hmm. someone who's using digital platforms to advocate for policy reform and also social change around sexual violence. And I think that's there's such an interesting coalescing of all of those agenda settings and different tools that are working together to produce this particular discourse, which I think is an interesting phenomenon. But also, too, I wonder as well the extent to which that law and policy reform is effective particularly in the context of of Grace Tame, for example, who has, yes, had some good early wins, but if you look at some of the things that she's then gone on to advocate for, they are incredibly minor, which may or may not actually have any kind of tangible impact on survivors who may end up going through a criminal legal process. And there's also this question around social change as well, and to what extent um, does the kind of subjectivity of these particular survivors mean that we'll believe some survivors, but we won't believe other survivors? So I want to pick up on that, but Mm. first of all, tell us what subjectivity means. Do you love how I'm just throwing these all back on you? (laughs) Subjectivity being the the kind of the construction of the subject themselves so the sort of components that make up a particular individual both their personal traits their political ideologies or positionalities and the kind of ways that they present themselves within public mm. public discourse you know and i think that, that what's really interesting is the ways that these particular survivors really curate themselves in a certain way so they present a particular type of themselves within the public sphere and that there's things that people really like about that, you know. I mean, Grace Tame calls herself Tame Punk on Twitter. You know, she knows that people like that edgy, critical, sort of, you know, rule-bending element of herself, and that's what has given her such great publicity, I think, particularly when she was Australian of the Year. You know, we all remember that photo of her standing next to Scott Morrison looking incredibly unimpressed. And of course, that's how we all feel. Well, (laughs) most of us, I don't want to speak on behalf of all listeners here, but a lot of us felt very much like she embodied that spirit of anti-Morrison-esque at the time and so she you know that that kind of subjectivity that she was crafting for herself was very much a curation of of things that she knew that people would want to see and it was a very spe- very specific decision making that she was undertaking and making that public statement i feel like we could go down a complete rabbit Mm-hmm. hole here but this is really interesting to me as well because i mean you're right the kind of public figures of sexual violence are that have emerged are straight middle class white women mm. and i mean more power to them they are incredibly often young women yes. very young women as well so they it is a particular type of victim that we're prepared to accept and acknowledge publicly mm. that gets that kind of social and political capital the contrast to that is two things i think in the institutional child sexual abuse space, the public victim is the older white male. Mm, yeah. 
And that's what the whole, and I think that has come to, and we've just begun to write with this on this with my beautiful colleague, Kathleen Phillips at Newcastle University, uh, write that that has actually, I think, been exclusionary of victims that we know that out there that aren't the white male, that are actually mm. largely the white female. Yeah. And so we're missing in here still the race element, which makes me think of the Me Too movement yeah. and the reality that this began as the work of women of colour in America and kind of got co-opted in the Twitter sphere, which is still yeah. largely a whitewashed space. Mm. And it's important to understand that that public subjectivity, that who gets where, who gets voice and mm. really critique that. Yeah, I think that's a, all really important points and I mean you know feminist activism has a long history of co-opting the work of women of colour and presenting it as if it's something new and totally original and it's just not and I think that one of the things I'm really interested in is this concept of listening and how is it that we can listen or how do how, who do we listen to why do we listen to them and to what effect does that listening have so how does it then translate into to change so I think about listening as being not just kind of hearing but also a response right and how is it that we respond so it's a two-way kind of um, street and one of the things I'm really interested in is how is it that we can listen to those who don't look like us right you know as white middle-class researchers we so much of the discourse is really not just necessarily shaped by academics ourselves but that's the kind of you, you create the world in which you also exist right and so one of the things I'm really interested in is thinking about ways to listen differently and ways to witness the experiences of others that don't look like us and whether it's developing methodological techniques in order to be able to facilitate listening in a way that's far more ethical and that captures those experiences outside of those ones that we have in our minds as popular representations that we see on the television or within political discourse or in the social media space as well and of course algorithms themselves are cooked in such a way that we will continue to see the kinds of things that twitter thinks we want to see or facebook or instagram or whatever it is tiktok um, and so i think that we're really obligated actually as researchers to try to facilitate witnessing and listening in ways that go beyond just what we already know because we already know so much yep. about cisgendered women's experiences of sexual violence for those white cisgendered women we need to move beyond that and see how we can access and speak to those communities who we don't normally hear from so i see in your other body of work that you have been i would say quite deliberate in working with a number of frontline organizations working across uh, different sectors, that must always be really easy, right? <laughs> Getting all those people in the room. It is really challenging. <laughs> <laughs> what are the, I guess, challenges of working across agendas? Mm. I think that there's twofold. That's a twofold question in the sense I'm thinking firstly about some of the research I've done on listening and witnessing these kind of different forms of anti-sexual violence activism and digital platforms and working with a diverse international team on some of that work. I've got some, you know, some colleagues in Spain, I've got some colleagues in Canada, I've got some colleagues in Brazil who are all trying to work together to facilitate this kind of process of ethical listening and witnessing. 
and the competing, I guess, competing agendas that everyone has. And that also translates over into some of the work I've been doing on alternative reporting pathways is you're managing multiple different stakeholders who've all got competing interests. You're working with police, you're working with support services, and within both the police and support services, you've got diverse views and perspectives. And then also, too, when you're working with survivors and trying to make sure that you are consulting broadly and that you are able to make sure that everybody is kept happy in the end. Because, of course, you know, there's research where you're undertaking the work and you're coming to conclusions on your own. And then you do consultancy kind of research as well, where you are trying to come up with a tool that can be useful for the community and you're having to deal with competing demands within the state sector that you're consulting with. So it's really difficult and it takes a lot of diplomacy and time. So what are your biggest lessons out of that? My biggest lessons out of that are that it takes time, actually, that things will always take longer than you anticipate they will. And that you are, you know, you're dependent on those community members who are involved in the research to make it happen. And so you have to really put aside your own thoughts and your own perspectives to really listen to what it is that they're saying so that you can make sure that what you are coming up with, whether it's recommendations or whether it's a final product that could be useful in the community, that you have to really you have to really put your own kind of objectives and your own needs to one side to try and focus on what it is that they need from you. But aren't you the expert in the room? You are. I mean, the expert in the room can only advise in the end, right? I think that's the main take-home. Another main take-home for me as well with this is that I can advise and I can provide my reflections on what I think might be best practice based on the work that I've done. But at the end of the day, I'm not the one who's working on the ground with community and I'm not the one who has to actually implement the tool itself. So really they're still the experts in that sense. I mean, I'm the intellectual expert, but I'm not the practice expert either. So it is very much about finding a a middle ground with that, but also to knowing that if they don't take your advice, not to take it personally as well, it's probably just because it might not necessarily be practical or useful for the organisation at that moment in time. Did you feel like that was something that you would encounter going into academia? No. (laughs) It's such a funny thing, you know, thinking back to my PhD training, I suppose if we would call it that, I was working with activists who were, you know, running online um, campaigns and digital platforms and things like that. Some of them were attached to sort of support services, but it was much more of a kind of intellectual exercise for me and kind and looking at the different ways that people were using digital platforms to share their experiences of sexual violence and how people were responding to those those stories that people were sharing and the kind of challenges that those people encountered in the process of managing those platforms. And then coming into being an academic and engaging with support services because it was a really important part of the of the process was not something I felt like I was prepared for or trained for and I had a lot of learning along the way and lots of lots of mistakes too you know I think one of the key things is communication and that was something I learned the hard way not communicating clearly enough or regularly enough with the stakeholders and 
that's something that I still have to work on and I think it's really an important part of the job is you know keeping people informed in the progress of the project and where you're at with everything too not just you know organizing interviews and coming in to for meet and greets and things like that but actually making sure that those people are genuine partners in the research I think that's a really challenging facet to, to manage and you've also got competing demands on you by the institution as well who is asked you know demanding for outputs and things like that whether it's publications or conference presentations or going for more grants and things like that but it all takes so much time you've really got to work hard on building those relationships and making sure that the people who are involved in the research are comfortable being part of the research as well and that you're you're doing things ethically and that you're doing justice to the work that you're doing as well it's such a tricky thing because I feel like academia in the past has been guilty and probably still is at times guilty of thinking that like we provide something really beneficial beneficial <laughs> and a service to frontline workers and without us like and frontline workers I'm like are so busy doing the job and actually getting on with it that I think it's difficult to actually integrate academia into that the point that I'm trying to get at is that academia, I think beautifully, and in criminology maybe in particular, is shifting even mildly to recognise that if we want our work to be tangible, if we want our work to have impact, if we want to take all of that passion that we have and make it into something productive, we are actually reliant on frontline sector and we're the ones that have to get better at managing that and working that in order to turn the things that are really passionate is the word that I keep the things that are really valuable Mm -hmm. into something that's really valuable for the wider public and the sector that we want to impact I'm still not sure that we're nailing that no I don't think so I think I mean historically you know academic research has been very extractive and there is a shift, I think, towards more what we might call those kinds of, you know, co-design methodological approaches and things like that that also involve the research uh, partners as co-designers of the research and that they're also treated as researchers themselves and that there's kind of ownership over the data that gets produced and things like that. And we are slowly, I think, shifting more towards that kind of model. It's not the only way to do research as well. And I think also, too, we need to be a bit more thoughtful about the about there being developing an evidence base but also like there's practice-based evidence and there's evidence-based practice as well and one of the things that I think we can be guilty of as researchers at times is thinking that well there's everything is broken and we need to go in and fix it and this is how we could go in and fix it and make it better but actually those people who are working on the ground are the ones with the knowledge base and they may not necessarily have developed an evidence base as we might understand it as researchers, but that they have their own knowledge base and their own evidence-based practice that they are are implementing and they're refining it and finessing it as they go along. And that that's a really valuable source of information for us to understand as well, you know, what works rather than what doesn't work. And I think that sometimes we come at it from a what doesn't works position as opposed to what works and how can we actually capture that more effectively and find a way to work with the partners to disseminate that kind of information because that could be really useful for other people in the sector as well. Tell me about out of all of this amazing work that you have done in your excellent career so far who is your favorite theorist theory slash body of work? 
So I'm going to go old school with this one, actually. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's super old school, but I mean, you can't. I can't go past Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, the classic 90s text around, you know, that was the first time when I was an undergraduate student, I was introduced to Judith Butler and this idea that gender is a social construct has always just been such a foundational element to my work. And so... Judith Butler's work has been highly influential in my my own thinking as as an academic as well as a as as well as a feminist as well as a person existing in this world and I approach my whole life actually through that through that lens but I've also been really heavily influenced more sort of specifically around the work that I've been doing lately around anti-sexual violence activism and alternative reporting pathways is Nicola Gavey's book called Just Sex The Cultural Scaffolding of Rape, first published in 95 and there was a new edition released in in 2018 to capture the Me Too movement. I'm not being paid to advertise her book, by the way. Um, (laughs) Also a fabulous scholar from Aotearoa, New Zealand at the University of Auckland. Uh, She's a social psychologist and she draws on Michel Foucault um, very much and and offers a Foucauldian interpretation of how we normalise sexual violence and how how rape comes to just look like sex and provides a very compelling articulation of the ways in which that then seeks to undermine any kind of attempt to address the problem. And so I would say that Nicola Gavey's book has been also incredibly influential on my thinking on sexual violence and um, law and policy reform on sexual violence. I've talked about Butler before because, I mean, I love Butler as well and rely a lot on Butler in some of the work that I do, but I've got to say Gender Trouble, I don't know how you read that as an undergraduate. I think that I got the spark notes (laughs) 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 to help me break it down. (laughs) So great. Why do you think gender is so important? I think gender is is the foundational kind of structure of of our society and we have such binary thinking around gender Mm. when it's just a social construct, you know, that it's it's a way to categorise and make sense of the world and historically it's been used and arguably continues to be used in ways that, you know, assert exert power over people and control and access to resources, the kinds of life that they might be able to live, the way that we interact with people. It's foundationally structured mm. on gender and, and so much inequality is also predicated on, on gender as well. So I feel like it's a, you know, of course Judith Butler was drawing on Simone de Beauvoir's work and various other sort of post-structural scholars around um, thinking about the sort of deconstruction of 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 categories and of the world and I just think it's a really it's a really important element of our everyday lives that we take for granted as well and I think it, it's, it baffles me still though after all these years that when you fill out the census they're asking they say what's your gender and then they offer you sex yeah options yeah <laughs> after all this time we still you know the, the the rest of the world still doesn't quite see that gender is a social construct and it's separate from sex and then there's sexuality as well and thinking about that matrix that she that she articulates around sex gender and sexuality I think is such a powerful a powerful contribution and a, such a significant contribution to scholarship so what would be your top tips for students surviving as an undergraduate Mm. My first tip, and this is a tip that I would give to all students, including postgraduate students, is to show up, whether that's to class or to tutorials. If you are a postgrad student, that means coming into the office, being seen in the office, coming to seminars, 
making sure that people know who you are, particularly for those of you who are interested in an academic career, but also not necessarily an academic career. If you wanted to go on to work as a public criminologist or as a criminologist in the field, in, in the sector, that you've got to you've got to be known. You've got to make you've got to know who the people to talk to are, and they need to know who you are. And so, going to talks, going to lunches, being present is a really important and first step in that regard. If they ask you to be on a committee, be on the committee. I mean, look, I'm I was on many committees as a postgraduate student. I said yes to a lot of things, and I think that it all helped along the way to get people. To see me, to get people to know who I was, to in, to enculturate me also too mm. into the discipline. So I mean, I'm actually not a criminologist by training; I'm a sociologist. But there's a sort of tacit knowledge that you're learning through showing up is probably almost more important than the actual disciplinary knowledge that you might obtain because you can learn that later on as I did when I came into my job I had to learn about criminology on the job um, but I knew how a university ran by the time I got my job because mm. I'd been present and shown up for all those different things that were on offer. Is showing up not really difficult though? It's bloody hard and I also should acknowledge as well that you know I was able to show up because I had lots of privilege and capacity to show up. I didn't have any children. I was I was on a scholarship as well, so I could I was being paid, however minuscule it was at the time, to to be present and that sort of thing. Able-bodied person as well, so it from a kind of physical standpoint, I was able to be present, but also had the time. And I know that not everybody has the time and that's a real challenge. And I think that we need to probably, I need to think a little bit more broadly about what a diverse form of showing up might, mm. might be as well. And it is hard. It, is, it was a lot of time that I gave up as well in order to be present. So it is, it is really tricky and I'll be you know, perfectly honest that I know that I was very, in a very privileged position to be able to do that. I love the point though about you will pick up a whole bunch of things through showing up Mm. that you won't even realize Mm. that you're learning or you're engaging with or that are beneficial just from being in the room which I mean I'm a huge fan of showing up just show up even if you don't like people even if you don't like people and I'm going to suggest that most academics don't actually like people sorry to generalize you all out there peeps like I'm just not a fan of the whole socialising, connecting kind of gig. But it's so important to build that community of people around you. Yeah. And that's I think it's true across anything that you do in life. That community of people around you is what's going to be really important to your success. That's right. And that goes back to the point that I made earlier, you know, about the conferences as well. That's another form of showing up as well. But I think to survive in academia... Or anywhere though as well in any workplace you need good people around mm. you and the only way you can start to build that is by finding different ways to sort of show up whether it's to those zoom meetings or participating in staff meetings or whatever it might be that you have the opportunity to to, to be present for and I think that I know that different unis have different approaches to what role postgraduate students play in their department but I think it's great when You've got postgraduates who are coming to staff seminars and things like that and giving postgraduate students opportunities to to share their work within the context of the environment in which they're studying. When I did my PhD, which was at La Trobe University, 
we used to have a postgraduate conference. I think lots of unis maybe do something similar now, but you know, it was expected that the staff would be there. There was usually a dinner or mm. some sort of like event at the end of the co- the two day conference, and it was always incredibly well attended. I don't. I think that it's changed now, and it's mostly sort of student oriented, and there's not so many staff who are involved anymore. But just that was such a beautiful intellectual environment to grow up in as an academic, even though people were researching on all kinds of different topics it was such a, a a beautiful way to get to know other people to know the different staff members and to feel like everyone was equal because sometimes it doesn't feel like that yeah 100 percent. like I love the the idea of people presenting on a whole bunch of different areas you may go this is not immediately useful to me but the things I've learned about how to think differently around problems have come from being in spaces that are not directly relevant to mm-hmm. whatever it is that I'm interested in and talking to the people and I would encourage everyone to show up and just talk to one person mm-hmm. one person you would not ordinarily talk to and think about the questions that you can ask before mm-hmm. going in as a strategy for making showing up more palatable mm. and building those connections with people that will be important as usual i feel like we could talk forever i really appreciated uh i get like i guess our professional interaction is relatively new but i've so thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you some more rachel and have loved your openness and willingness in showing up to kind of be welcoming of the people around you and be excited and enthusiastic about life and learning and thank you for your service to the academic community on ANSOC. Totally something I never want to do. So more power to you, girlfriend. <laughs> and thanks for being on How to Academia. Thank you so much for having me, Jodie. It's been an absolute pleasure. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Associate Professor Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams. That's me. Music by Poddington Bear, and this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.